0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club of California. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to today's Commonwealth Club program with former U.S. National Security Advisor, Ambassador John Bolton. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club, and I'm pleased to be our moderator for today's very important program. I'm joining you today from Santa Clara, California. Before formally welcoming our guest, a brief note about the Commonwealth Club. We're now approaching our sixth month of being an all virtual organization. Since mid-March, we've provided over 200 live streamed programs on a range of topics and with thought leaders from across the political spectrum. At this time, when so many complex issues confront us, the Commonwealth Club continues to be the most active platform for civil discussion in our country and the world. The club is a nonprofit which neither pays speakers nor accepts funds from those who speak at the Commonwealth Club. To enable us to continue to be here for you during the pandemic and when it ends, we invite and encourage you to donate to the club. Please visit CommonwealthClub.org to learn about our upcoming programs and how you can support the club, including uh, attending our virtual gala, which is going to take place on October 16th. You can also text DONATE to 415329. 4231 during this program. Thank you so much for your support. And now on with our program. It's the Tuesday after Labor Day during a presidential election year. As always, today is the unofficial kickoff to the fall political season, which concludes with the presidential election on November 3rd. So it is extremely timely to have former Ambassador John Bolton with us today. His memoir, The Room Where It Happened, has captured wide attention for his description of his work as national security advisor to President Trump, a position he stepped down from a year ago. Since then, Ambassador Bolton has been a popular figure in the president's Twitter feed, as recently as last night. Prior to serving as national security advisor to the president, he was senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. During the George W. Bush administration, Mr. Bolton was ambassador to the United Nations. Prior to that appointment, he served as Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security from May of 2001 to May of 2005. He served four presidents. He's an attorney, a graduate of Yale College, uh, and also Yale Law School. I'm so pleased to welcome Ambassador Bolton back to the Commonwealth Club. Before we start our discussion, a final quick note. If you have a question for the ambassador, please post it to the YouTube chat box, and they'll be forwarded to me throughout the program. I'll ask as many of them as possible. Ambassador Bolton, welcome to the Commonwealth Club.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. Glad to be with you.
0: Thank you. And let me start out with uh, a question of my own. Tomorrow, it will be one year since you left the Trump administration. You served, I believe, for 17 months. Some of your experiences were rather negative, as you've detailed in your book, and we'll certainly get around to those. But let's start out on a positive note. What do you feel were the top accomplishments you were able to achieve while in office?
1: Well, I think uh, the first and perhaps one of the most significant was uh, withdrawing from the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action. Uh, It was a very bad deal when it was negotiated. Uh, It gave Iran a lot of advantages, a lot of opportunities to continue to uh, pursue not only its nuclear weapons and ballistic missile programs, but to take advantage of the elimination of economic sanctions and a variety of other steps to increase its revenues, which it used to build up its conventional forces and its support for terrorism. So the reinstitution of U.S. sanctions brought uh, significant economic harm to the government of Iran. Uh, I don't think we went far enough uh, in the policy, but certainly I think getting out of that very bad deal uh, was a big step forward. Uh, I think, uh, although it's considerably less noted, uh, another uh, positive was completely changing the way that decisions are made within the U.S. government on how to launch offensive operations in cyberspace. Now, that I'm sure sounds bureaucratic, but I can tell you that the decision-making structure we inherited from the Obama administration, in effect, made it difficult, if not impossible, uh, for the U.S. to launch offensive cyber operations. And if you accept the Uh, cyberspace is just another domain of human interactivity, not different from any other domain. Uh, When you face hostile actors, one way to protect yourself is to set up structures of deterrence so that an adversary knows if they come after you, they're going to pay a much greater price, which hopefully induces them not to start in the first place. So that was a lengthy, complicated process, but it has been in place since before the 2018 election. Uh, when it was able to come into operation and hopefully will be uh, operational this year as well. And then finally, I think the uh, U.S. withdrawal from the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty uh, in uh, 2019 was another important step. Russia had been violating that treaty for decades. Uh, In fact, one way to look at it is the only country in the world precluded from building intermediate-range nuclear-capable missiles was the United States. There were only two parties, the U.S. and Russia, didn't bind China, didn't bind Iran, didn't bind North Korea. Uh, Russia was in violation, and we were honoring it. So there's a treaty that limited only the United States were out of that, too. So those would be three.
0: So let's talk about those for a second. Um, as you may know, I spent 20 years or so in the arms control field uh, trying to build agreements and and uh, make them effective. So I probably come from a, a bit of a different perspective. But let's drill in for a second on the Iran agreement. One of the uh, arguments for agreements like this with a state that's very closed and into which we have very limited visibility and a very limited Relationship with is to try to gain some inspection rights and to gain more visibility into what they're doing with the hope of down the road, uh, tightening up and making agreements like this more effective. What do you think of that argument? Did we lose anything by uh, getting rid of the Iran nuclear agreement?
1: Well, I think from the U.S. perspective overall, the most important way that we have to understand um, Compliance with uh, arms control agreements, or uh, what we euphemistically call national technical means—that—that that is to say, our intelligence gathering capabilities—verification uh, regimes add uh, a certain amount. It depends, of course, on the country involved, the nature of the agreement, the nature of the verification mechanism. Uh, I'm a big supporter of the International Atomic Energy Agency, but let's be clear: in in the hard world of nuclear weapons. The IAEA is like a butter knife. It's useful. It's important to have. But that's all that it is. Uh, It doesn't see what the uh, government like Iran doesn't want it to see. Uh, And in fact, looked at in a variety of perspectives, the Iran nuclear deal gave the IAEA less access than Iran should have been granting the IAEA under the nonproliferation treaty and the various protocols uh, that, uh, that Iran had theoretically agreed to with the IAEA for regular inspection. So, uh, much of the argument in favor of the Iran nuclear deal, uh, rests on the assumption that through the IAEA or even our own capabilities, we would know everything what, uh, about what Iran was doing. And I never believed that for a second. That was one of the major problems with the deal.
0: Um, Turning to the INF agreement and arms control agreements in general, um, it seems to me that an arms control agreement is the start of a process. Um, And back in the 80s, I had a study group at Stanford and we wrote a book on uh, compliance. That is, the point is to start a process and then try to ensure compliance through various methods, some of which involve talking, some of which may involve pressure or other Mechanisms. Uh, so do you not think that um, these agreements need to be followed up by a framework that uh, pursues compliance had we fully pursued uh, with the INF Treaty, for example, uh, trying to uh, ensure that the Russians and others complied with the INF Treaty before jettisoning it?
1: Well, you know, the Obama administration, uh, almost from its beginning, uh, understood the Russians were in violation of the INF Treaty, and they had close to an eight-year record of trying to bring the Russians into compliance, which uh, had failed uh, fairly dramatically. Uh, You know, when you're dealing with authoritarian societies, uh, it is uh, contrary to their own basic, uh, it's an existential question for them, really, not to allow the sort of intrusive inspections that uh, are the only mechanism that, that you can rely on to really get to facts on the ground. Uh, that was certainly the case with, uh, with Iran and North Korea and the case with Russia as well. So I, I guess my basic uh, uh, view on these is uh, one that Winston Churchill first articulated when he said, the only countries that you can count on to comply with their obligations under arms control agreements are countries you don't need arms control agreements with in the first place.
0: What about, let's turn to some other accomplishments during your time there. Uh, the, the move of the um, uh, the um, Israeli government uh, capital to Jerusalem, was that something you supported and were involved in?
1: Well, that uh, occurred shortly before I joined. I had testified uh, earlier in 2018 in favor of that. I think it was the right thing to do. It's was basically a simple recognition of reality, uh, and uh, I think that uh, in any in any peace process, recognizing reality is a pretty important first step. Uh, and uh, it was uh, Israel was one of the few countries in the world, maybe only two or three in total. The others, for physical reasons, where the U.S. didn't have its embassy in the city that the government itself thought was its capital. So this was not a prejudicial move toward final status negotiations, because it was never any question, but that the embassy would be uh, uh, west of the green line, that is to say, in territory that nobody ever believed would be part of a Palestinian state.
0: So um, it seems to me that there's a fair amount to be satisfied with, from your perspective, having gone into this administration, even though There were many problematic areas. There was quite a bit of accomplishment in terms of uh, your long held views, what you had been advocating outside of government and so on.
1: Well, certainly, certainly, there were decisions that were made that uh, that I supported uh, more than what we 've talked about but but really the the question is not uh, did you eventually get to the right result, but how long did it take you to get there, and what was the process that took you from a to b uh, and and that 's the sense I think I try and convey in the book that uh, President Trump doesn't make decisions on the basis of a of a broad philosophy, doesn't make decisions on the basis of grand strategy. He doesn't make decisions on the basis of policy. Uh, He makes them on gut feeling, personal intuition, and a very keen appreciation uh, of the effect of the decision on his own political fortunes.
0: In the foreign policy area, I've been thinking a lot back to even when I was an undergraduate and uh, the Nixon administration, uh, Henry Kissinger, Issued every year at the foreign policy statement. Uh, Very comprehensive. What were US interests? What was our foreign policy, main foreign policy thrusts? we 've had nothing like that uh, during this period of time, so it 's kind of hard to understand what the philosophy uh, and thrust is let 's talk about some of the areas in which there was a lot of struggle for you to get things done or to prevent certain things from happening. Some of the discussion I found most interesting uh, in your book was about the issues with russia and uh, about crimea relations with Iran and other issues and the inability of the, uh, the president uh, and the administration to essentially stand up to Russia. Could you go over some of that area? What were some of your concerns, your dissatisfactions uh, in policy with Russia?
1: Well, one of the things that uh, Vladimir Putin has been uh, pursuing for some time uh, is an effort to reestablish Russian influence uh, within the space of the former Soviet Union uh, in the Middle East and uh, and more broadly, and, and including in the Western Hemisphere, uh, Putin said in uh, in his first term as president, his last State of the uh, Country message, that the uh, the the breakup of the Soviet Union was one of the great geopolitical tragedies of the 20th century, and it's been clear he's been trying to. Uh, re-establish Russian hegemony there and, and as I said, expand Russia's influence elsewhere as well. So in a variety of areas, uh, uh, primarily in Ukraine in terms of Eastern Europe uh, during my time at the White House, but extending and including now in Belarus, uh, where I traveled in uh, 2019, actually about two weeks before I resigned. I didn't know I was resigning in two weeks, but I went to Belarus to meet with uh, President Lukashenko, because I thought it was important uh, to withstand Russian pressure on Ukraine and and Belarus, particularly Belarus at that time, not to be reabsorbed into Russia. And we can see today how complicated Belarus is with the protest against Lukashenko's hijacking of the recent uh, elections. But this whole area of how to deal with Russia uh, in the space of the former Soviet Union and with respect to members, former members of the Warsaw Pact like Poland, now NATO allies of the United States, uh, I just felt that uh, one way to push back against uh, Russian adventurism was to take a firmer, firmer line against uh, Putin, which I don't think we did. I think that a uh, problem was even more pronounced in uh, the Middle East, where Russia's presence, its armed forces in Syria... Uh, It's, uh, uh, in effect, its tacit alliance with uh, Iran, also in Syria, but really extending through Iraq and Lebanon as well, uh, made it very difficult for U.S. policies to bring stability and security to that region. Uh, And I think that uh, the continuing concern about Russia and China growing more closely aligned over time— uh, is something that actually is a matter of great peril for Russia. I'm still not clear why they don't understand that. But in the near term, it's a problem for the United States and the West as a whole. We need to do more there. And so I think kind of across the board, we did a number of things. We did have strong sanctions against Russia on uh, for a number of uh, reasons, but only after uh, kicking and pulling and tearing and much complaining by the president before the sanctions were put into effect. These are things involving, for example, the fallout from the 2018 attempted murder of the Skripals uh, in England using the chemical weapon from the Novichok family, most recently used, I'm sure purely by coincidence, against Alexei Navalny, the Russian dissident. So a long list of things that, although we may have done the right thing, we did it late and uh, did it less vigorously than we might have. So
0: let's talk about Belarus for a second. Uh, it seems to many that this could be an inflection point for Belarus, uh, for, with some popular uh, out, outpouring at this point against Lukashenko and his repressive regime. What would you? What could the US do if you could write the script on this? What could we constructively do?
1: Well, I think the first thing is that uh, the administration has to pay attention to it. Uh, They have issued some statements. Uh, They've had diplomats travel to the region. But even compared to the Europeans, even compared to Germany, uh, the U.S. response has been very muted. There have been no real uh, statements by the president. I think he's responded to a press question or two over uh, the past month or so, But, but effectively at the top level... Uh, the situation has not been discussed. And I think even in the most recent call with Putin, the White House said that that it was not discussed. Uh, I think that uh, the United States uh, should be pressuring the Europeans, especially Germany, that this is yet another case where the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is undercutting our ability to constrain Russia. And I think one thing I've suggested publicly is that Germany should tell Russia the Nord Stream Two pipeline is suspended until we get a clear commitment from Russia that there will be no interference uh, inside Belarus. Now, there are those who say the Russians are already inside Belarus. They may be wearing civilian clothes, but they're there, and uh, that would be disturbing if true, to say the least. Uh, I think that uh, that the, the the best way to deal with Lukashenko, though, is not to call for new elections because he's never going to give new elections. Look, he lost the last election, which was fixed, uh, and he just changed the result. A free and fair election would for sure put him out of power. I think you need to go to him privately. Uh, I think it could well be an American uh, uh, who could carry out the negotiation and say, look, you're, you're going to fall one way or the other. The question is, do you want to be remembered who let the person who let Belarus fall back into Putin's hands and become reintegrated into Russia? Or do you want to leave it a free country with options to look to the West? Uh, I think that means you have to promise no prosecution for the millions and millions of dollars he and his family have probably stolen over the years. Uh, Some people would be offended by that. I think people who would not be offended would be 9.5 million Belarusians who might be able to live in peace and freedom.
0: So um, where else should the U.S. be taking a stand with Russia? What other issues?
1: Well, I think uh, uh, although the government of the United States itself is doing uh, a lot, a lot which can't be discussed publicly, to protect the integrity of American elections uh, along with state and local governments and protecting them against threats and attacks, not just by Russia, but by China, Iran and others. Uh, I don't think we have yet communicated effectively enough to the Russians that, uh, that that we consider this a hostile act against the United States. When the president doesn't raise it in conversations with Vladimir Putin, the inference is he either doesn't care enough about it, or he he doesn't believe that it's something that rises to a sufficiently grave level that the two leaders have to talk about it. That's like flashing a green light at somebody like Vladimir Putin. Uh, and I think that the lack of uh, a strong and clear public response by the United States uh, is a problem, not simply for us, but for our friends in Europe and elsewhere as well. That if we're not standing up to it, uh, one can imagine that uh, the Russians think they can uh, interfere in elections elsewhere as well. And likewise, I think in Beijing and Tehran and other capitals, uh, they read it the same way.
0: I think, you know, this is a tough area to get into. I think a lot of people puzzle over the president's attitude towards Russia. There are the explanations you've offered and also the explanation that there's some kind of personal agenda there with Russia. What's your interpretation? Why does he pull punches? I mean, we have a long history of, you know, trying to cooperate with the Russians where possible, but also taking a stand on human rights and other issues. Why is this president different?
1: Well, you know, his response would be, I've been tougher on Russia than anybody else. Now, I don't, I don't want to argue the historical merits of that claim, but he points to the sanctions that I've mentioned earlier as evidence of how tough he is. And all I can say is every time he does that, it calls back to my mind the efforts, the struggles, the discussions, I'll use that word politely, that we had uh, with him to get him ultimately to approve of these measures these weren't measures he where he said i'm determined to stop this kind of russian behavior and impose these sanctions it was always after considerable effort to get him uh, to agree to it uh, i I'm, the best explanation i can come up with is goes back to the 2016 election he was accused of colluding with the russians uh, i must say after all the investigations i think there may be uh, a lot of proof of naivete and, uh, uh, and ignorance about how the Russians behave. I still don't see any proof of collusion. But the president thinks if he acknowledges that there's a Russian threat out there to disrupt the integrity of our elections, uh, it will call into question whether the Russia collusion allegation had some merit uh, and therefore undercut the legitimacy of his election itself. I, I don't agree with that. I think if he took a more uh, public uh, line against interference in our elections, it would strengthen the view that uh, that he was elected legitimately in 2016 to begin with. But having had that discussion and failed, I have no hope that he's, he's going to suddenly start doing that.
0: So uh, you mentioned activities underway to prevent uh, meddling in our elections by the Russians. Do you feel that there's a concerted effort by the Russians to uh, medal in our upcoming presidential election?
1: Well, I think it's been their policy for a long time to sow dissension in the United States to try and undermine confidence in our basic institutions. Uh, and it's not so much that they or the Chinese or others favor one candidate over another. They they may have that view. There, there could be disagreements and Moscow and Beijing, about who would be a better president from their respective points of view. It's more about—it's uh, it's less about direct interference in elections. Uh, and I have to say that uh, authoritarian governments are not likely to be the best judges of what's politically efficacious uh, in political elections to begin with, but but to, to disrupt the whole process. And I might say, if you go back to George Kennan's famous long telegram from Moscow— uh, at the start of the Cold War, uh, he talks in the telegram about Soviet efforts then uh, to uh, uh, com- to increase alienation from U.S. institutions. It's why the communists were trying to take over Hollywood uh, in the in the 40s and and, and 50s. Uh, that was the social media of the day. They wanted control of a very important communications uh, mechanism. So there's nothing particularly new here in the sense of the underlying Russian approach. It's just being done uh, in uh, over the internet, really, rather than through the movie studio.
0: Are you heartened by what you see going on in this country, people actively exercising their rights to vote, trying to protect those rights and so on?
1: Uh, voting is uh, the most important act of uh, civic participation that that we have. Uh, and even in the time of the coronavirus uh, I think uh, I'm, I'm worried we're actually moving in the opposite direction. I I don't think uh, I'm, I'm not a big proponent of voting by mail, not, not because of fraud. I just think there's a civic character involved in on election day, getting out of bed, going to your voting place, standing in line uh, and going up to the machine and voting, putting your ballot, whether it's electronic or putting your paper ballot in the box, getting a little sticker for your coat that says, I voted. I wish every American did it on the same day. Uh, There are a few people who are understandably absent people in the military and others. But I think we have the capability in this country to have everybody vote on the first Tuesday after the first uh, Monday in November. I think that's the way it ought to be. It's like jury duty. People say, "What?" it's just so much easier to sit at home and punch it out on your computer. Yeah, well, we didn't get democracy easily in this country, and people ought to go through the ritual of voting and stand in that line with their fellow citizens and think about it when they vote. I, I'm I'm I may be a minority of one in this country on that perspective, but that's how I see it.
0: A small footnote. I'm working at home. The Commonwealth Club has a beautiful building on the waterfront in San Francisco, mostly empty these days, but we will be a polling place. And we try to do that as part of our contribution to the democratic process. So So let's talk about another major area where there was a lot of uh, pulling and tugging uh, and efforts to influence the president, and that's on North Korea. You're you're a very committed uh, advocate of nonproliferation and of effective means of uh, trying to prevent uh, near nuclear states from moving further down that road. There was the whole uh, issue about meeting with Kim Jong-un about what would be in an agreement or a joint statement. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You cover a lot of that in your book, what you advocated for, what eventually happened and what, what your conclusions are about that.
1: Well, uh, literally, just as I was joining the uh, administration, uh, about a week or two before, the president announced he had accepted the South Korean invitation to meet with Kim Jong-un. Eventually, we worked it out to be in uh, Singapore. And I, th- I thought that was a bad decision on our part. Uh, I think it gave legitimacy and prestige to Kim Jong-un, got nothing for the United States in return. I was very worried that... Uh, The president really saw this as a massive photo opportunity more than anything else, uh, and that uh, we would give away long-held and very important positions with respect to North Korea's nuclear weapons program. Uh, It turned out it was a huge photo opportunity, one of the biggest press conferences President Trump ever had uh, there in Singapore. But fortunately, we didn't give away anything. Uh, We didn't give away anything in Hanoi. In, In fact, the president walked away from a very inadequate partial deal. Uh, So that was the right outcome there. Uh, And then we had another photo opportunity in uh, Korea at the demilitarized zone. So at the end of what are now roughly two and a half years of these negotiations, we are uh, net, net, uh, nowhere in terms of negotiations. In fact, uh, about a month or so ago, a little bit more than that, I think, North Korea actually blew up the liaison office it had built in Kaesong, which is just north of the DMZ, actually on the 38th parallel, that it it had used for meetings with South Korea. But we're not neutral in terms of North Korea's programs after three and a half years of of this activity, because during that time, North Korea has continued to advance uh, both its nuclear and ballistic missile programs. Time is not a neutral factor when it comes to proliferation, time is almost always on the side of the would-be proliferator, overcoming the scientific and technological obstacles in the way of the very sophisticated capability of having deliverable nuclear weapons. So now North Korea has just had another three, three and a half uh, years to, to make progress. Uh, and we're seeing stories and, you know, the, the, these, these stories are worth what you pay for. them. we'll see if it actually happens of having a... Uh, uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile test literally within the next few weeks. Now, during the time of the negotiations, President Trump kept saying there are no ICBMs being tested. There, there are no nuclear uh, bombs being tested in North Korea, uh, which which may be true, but it means after a while, you know, you stop testing and start building, uh, and it could mean they were building nuclear devices, and it could be now. They're about to test an ICBM that can hit the United States. So we have gone backwards again. North Korea is closer to where it was in achieving the ability to hit the United States than it was when Trump took office.
0: Was it destructive, in your view, to have President Trump uh, signing a meaningless agreement with Kim Jong-un and uh, you know, be, being seen in that light with the dictator of North Korea?
1: Yeah, I think it was all upside for Kim Jong-un. Uh, I think we got nothing from it. Uh, I think it made it harder to enforce uh, the international sanctions that had been imposed by the Security Council, harder to get enforcement, harder to get the Chinese to do their part. You know, if the Chinese were really serious about stopping North Korea from getting nuclear weapons, uh, they they could do it almost on their own. They supply 90 percent of North Korea's energy Uh, in the form of oil, uh, and they've never really cut it off uh, the way they could. And so when it looks like the United States is easing up, everybody else says, well, we'll ease up too. So I think uh, uh, whoever takes office on January the 20th, is going to face a North Korea problem that's four years further advanced than it was when Trump took office.
0: So we could go on through uh, a number of other issues, but let's get back to the comment you made earlier and then what you emphasize over and over again in your book. You don't mince words about President Trump. You talk about the lack of process. Uh, you call him at one point unfit to serve. So Tell us more about your experiences in dealing with the president. I believe you also have said that he his agenda is really what's best for him in a political sense, uh, not necessarily what's best for the country. Uh, tough words. Uh, say more.
1: Well, you know, he's not uh, what I would call intellectually curious, uh, no no president comes to office with three hundred sixty degree knowledge of all the areas they have to deal with that's that's a given the office is so vast and so complex uh some people have a have a have had a career in in a direction that gives them great knowledge about that, but they may be uh inexperienced in a number of other areas that that's fine you can't you you can't complain somebody's not ready in the area you deal with because they may be ready somewhere else. But, but Trump had essentially no experience in international affairs other than a few real estate deals. Uh, and so you say, OK, well, then then he will apply himself and learn what he needs to learn. And uh, and during my experience with him, he never did that. And it's not that he was lazy. He's very hardworking. He works uh, constantly, really, from the from the time he gets up by his definition of work, not necessarily by by mine but it's not like he's lying around uh, eating grapes. Uh, he just doesn't care about learning new things. Uh, and he would say affirmatively, what really matters is my ability to size up the people on the other side uh, and to make deals with them. That's that's what, I guess, what he did in his uh, real estate career. And it's certainly important to be able to assess the your interlocutor across the table. There's That's a very important personal skill. Uh, and the ability to negotiate deals is a, is an important skill. But it would be helpful to know what the substance of the deal is. And uh, in case after case, I just didn't see the president that interested in finding out. Uh, how will this play out, let's say, between now and the election? Uh, I think it's kind of uh, common speculation in uh, Washington that there'll be some kind of October surprise. Will he announce a uh, strategic weapons deal with the Russians, for example. I think that's one possibility. Uh, does he have any idea what's at stake in these negotiations over whether to extend the New START treaty, to renegotiate it, to do something else? Not really. Uh, and yet we face the prospect of a deal uh, on the basis that it would be a great thing to have two or three weeks before an election. This is the kind of uh, uh, of approach that makes it very hard over the vast uh, scope of activities that the U.S. has internationally in diplomatic circles and economic and business circles and military circles to have coherent policy. And while the different pieces of the U.S. government certainly have not been standing still for the last three and a half years, it has made their work much more difficult. It's made it harder to define what American policy is there's been a huge opportunity cost in not being able to take advantage uh, of situations that we could have used to our benefit because we couldn't get the president to focus on it. Uh, and, and so I think uh, it has left the, the country at a disadvantage internationally that, uh, that didn't need to be that way.
0: Within the administration, within the U.S., there seems to be a tendency by this president to like people, and then dislike them, in relatively rapid succession, and I think you probably saw that all around you, and perhaps felt some of that yourself. So, deriding people, dismissing people—what is that? What 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 goes on with him?
1: Well, I I, I don't think it's something that he started just uh, when he walked into the Oval Office. This is a this is a habit that I think formed over a long period of time. Uh, maybe he thought. Uh, that was the best way to run a business. I haven't I haven't talked to any uh, CEO or executive uh, that that uh, has read my book who has thought that it was anything but uh, uh, a, a terrible way to run any any kind of operation. Uh, and I remember, and I think I put this in the book at the appropriate place. Uh, it certainly. Uh, A unique experience to sit there and listen to the president deride other senior advisors in the administration, um, whether to me alone or with others in the room. Uh, And it may seem kind of amusing at first, but uh, it doesn't take long before you realize if he is uh, denigrating Mr. X or Ms. Y to you, you can count on it that he's denigrating you to them. So when people look at the culture within the administration, the culture within, uh, the White House, the war of all against all that we were constantly involved in. I think it's the president's own attitude that uh, is a very substantial contributor to that. There's no feeling you're all on the same team. Uh, and I think by now, the history of uh, of a lot of people who went into the administration feeling they wanted to serve the country, that they could make a contribution uh, uh, to the administration and ultimately just found that uh, that they were wasting their time uh, is is a pretty sad commentary on, on how the administration has been run. And it, by the way, sorry, just to interrupt, it, it won't change in a second term. It will get worse, if anything.
0: So I come from a family of veterans starting with the Revolutionary War and at an ending with the Vietnam War for my husband. Um, a lot of people are deeply offended by what apparently are President Trump's comments about losers and suckers uh, who, you know, died or were wounded in wars. Did you hear him say that, uh, something like that? Uh, what, what's your take on that?
1: No, I, I didn't hear that, and I didn't hear it in the context of the decision in 2018 to go out to the Marne Cemetery in, uh, in France the day before the 100th anniversary of uh, Armistice Day. But I have heard the president uh, uh, on any number of occasions uh, in speaking about conflicts that that he thought were mistaken, Iraq and Afghanistan come to mind, of basically saying that those who fought in those conflicts and who paid a price, sometimes the ultimate price, sometimes grievous wounds, uh, really had uh, sacrificed in vain because the war itself was, Uh, Was unworthy. Now, you know, 2020 hindsight's always perfect in the near term. We don't know what history's verdict on those wars over a long stretch will be. But it's also wrong to say that somebody who joined the military, entered the service of their country, was sent into harm's way uh, to advance the country's interest, uh, somehow uh, acted in vain if uh, a later commentary doesn't agree with the mission they were sent. Uh, to carry out uh, in the first place. Uh, and But but for example, and I, I recount this in the book as well, we were uh, in the Oval Office uh, once having a discussion about Afghanistan and the president was uh, speaking in the terms pretty much like I've just described. And John Kelly, who was then chief of staff, was in the room. His son died in Afghanistan. And the president, after deriding the war itself, uh, looked at John across the room and said, you suffered the most, referring to the death of his son, which I thought was a uh, was a needless and, and very cruel thing to say. Uh, and I think it reflects the president simply doesn't understand uh, the ethic uh, of those who serve in the military. I mean, we have an all-volunteer army now. People go in it uh, of their own, all volunteer military go in it uh, of their own volition, uh, and they do so through the highest motivations. Uh, now, the president does say that from time to time, but to me, this is simply evidence that uh, it's politically advantageous to do that, uh, and so he does it for that reason. But I don't, th- I don't think he fully understands. I don't think he understands in large part what the military is all about. So uh, in
0: terms of process again, um, how would you compare, for instance, the, your role uh, and the process for decision-making in the Bush administration versus the Trump administration?
1: Well, in, in fact, across the whole range of, uh, of four Republican administrations I've I've served in, Every president does it a little bit differently. And and the National Security Council structure and process should should reflect uh, the the way each president operates. It's they're the president. The the rest of us should get used to it. But uh, I could easily take the Reagan, Bush 41 and Bush 43 NSC processes, put them on one side uh, and the Trump process. I use that term loosely on the other side. And whatever the differences uh, among the first three, they pale into insignificance compared to the chasm between the way they operated and the way the Trump administration operates. Uh, If you think that the only thing that matters is how your gut tells you a given situation should be handled, you don't need a process. You, You can decide after 30, 45 seconds of briefing, you make up your mind, and then you go on to the next exciting thing to do. Uh, I think if Dwight Eisenhower uh, came back to life and walked into the Trump White House, uh, uh, he he would throw up his hands in dismay and and go back to heaven or wherever he is at the moment and say, This place is hopeless uh, And I think that it has two consequences. Number one, you're constantly worried about making informed decisions uh, uh, in in the immediate circumstances you face. Uh, but number two, you're never operating under a coherent strategy. You can write strategy papers, and frankly, we wrote some great ones, but it's not like the president pays any attention to them.
0: Question from the audience, and I apologize for glancing away. I'm looking at an iPad with the questions coming in from the audience. Is there any U.S. policy uh, currently in place to deal with Chinese aggression?
1: Well, sure, there, there are a lot of... Uh, Contingency plans uh, on on the military side, but uh, and they're constantly being evolved. Uh, Chinese threat is growing. It's uh, uh, very substantial in cyberspace. Uh, it's uh, very substantial in terms of trying to take control of the South China Sea, the East China Sea, the development of what are called area denial and anti-access weapons capabilities basically to push the United States Navy away from the shores of the western Pacific where we've been since World War II the Chinese are upgrading their ballistic uh, missile and nuclear uh, capabilities uh, it's a it's really a dramatic growth in the full spectrum of Chinese military capabilities what we lack in China uh, uh, overall, though, is a is a coherent strategy to deal with them politically and economically too. Uh, China has uh, disproven the optimists who uh, said when, uh, particularly after Deng Xiaoping uh, changed China's domestic economic policies to make them less less Marxist, uh, that people said, "Well, now they will become a more responsible stakeholder in international affairs." They're They'll engage in a peaceful rise internationally. They'll adopt the norms and and practices that the world's industrial democracies follow. And they've done the exact opposite. They steal our intellectual property. They engage in forced technology transfer. They discriminate against foreign businesses. They use the World Trade Organization, supposedly a free trade environment, to pursue mercantilist uh, policies. And they've been very successful at it. Uh, the, the, it was also believed that as China became a wealthier country, it would become more democratic, that the village for headman and village election for headman in some remote province would spread to other villages, and then there'd be elections at the provincial level, and then there'd be elections at the national level. In fact, China has moved 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Uh, Xi Jinping is the most authoritarian, most powerful Chinese leader since Mao Zedong. So much of what we thought was going to happen in China has not happened, uh, and that means policies should change. And that, that uh, strategic approach is something we sorely need at the moment.
0: I see a, an elephant in the background there in your office, and you are a longtime Republican. I take it that you don't think President Trump should be reelected. Uh, so where do you go politically here?
1: Well, I'm still look. I'm I'm still a conservative Republican. I, I haven't become some squishy liberal uh, out of dissatisfaction uh, for Trump. But I don't I don't think he's a conservative. Number one, I don't think he has a philosophy. Uh, he does things that uh, appeal to people who are conservatives, the appointment of federal judges and whatnot. But I think uh, I think people need to understand if he wins a second term, which is still entirely possible, he will be. Uh, even freer to do what his gut tells him to do in a second term than he is in the first term, where there is no electoral constraint on re-election. And as I've said, as we've discussed, as I detail in the book, uh, I don't think he's competent to be president either. So I'm obviously, I did vote for him in 2016. I'm obviously not going to vote for him this time. I can't do that in good conscience, but I'm not going to vote for Biden either as a philosophical matter. Uh, In Maryland, where I live, you can write in Candidate's name, so I'm going to write in a yet to be determined uh, uh, conservative Republican name. I'm I'm trending toward uh, Ronald Reagan. I uh, Understand he may be available, but hope springs eternal.
0: That would be that wouldn't be the son; that would be the father. Right. So, um, and I believe you had uh, some run-ins with Joe Biden uh, back when you were up for appointment as U- UN uh, ambassador for the U.S.
1: Right well he he's managed to vote against me uh, twice for confirmation in the Senate uh for the undersecretary job as well as UN ambassador uh, but I've I've dealt with him on a professional basis for a long time and uh, uh I don't have any doubt about his integrity uh I think he needs to uh to demonstrate to the population as a whole uh in these three debates that he he can be president of the United States that's that's on him that's one of the things any challenger has to do, the fundamental burden of the campaign is to say, "I am an acceptable alternative to the incumbent, so we'll see how he does.
0: Tell us about how things ended with you with the current administration. Uh, you resigned just were you going to be fired were you know was it a mutual uh, detachment uh, and uh, you know what what was the denouement
1: well, there was no one uh, dramatic incident or anything like that. And it was an accumulation of, uh, uh, I think disagreements. I had actually written the draft of the resignation letter, uh, that I submitted ultimately, which was only two sentences long. I don't believe in long essays when you resign. I had written that three or four months before I did resign. Uh, and by the way, we're coming up on the one year anniversary this Thursday. uh, uh I don't know what I'll do to celebrate, but, uh, uh, you know finally uh you just get to the point where uh if you can't uh, if you're not being effective at all if if uh, if you just understand that it's time to go and and that's the point I came to and uh, I think a lot of other people have gone through uh, exactly that that same process
0: back to the current situation with the pandemic and so on. a lot of people have looked back to the n s c and what happened to the the uh, pandemic preparedness team that was at the NSC. uh, Right before you got there, when you got there, uh, what happened there? Uh, Why do we not have a functioning team uh, at the NSC focused on pandemic preparedness?
1: We do. And what I did was I took one small office uh, that dealt with biosecurity and combined it with a larger office that dealt with biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons. Uh, It was, I think, to give a greater focus to the biological threat since the use of biological weapons uh, carries with it many of the same epidemiological attributes uh, of a pandemic such as we're going through now. Uh, And uh, of course, I left in uh, September of 2019 But the New York Times, as an example, always authoritative. New York Times never makes a mistake, right? And we all know it's a hotbed of of radical conservatism, did a long, long study of what happened in the U.S. uh, to the pandemic uh, some four or five months ago. And it lists as examples of what steps were being taken. In early January, uh, the NSC staffers responsible for biosecurity were raising red flags that there was a problem. The issue was not that the staffers at the NSC weren't doing the job that they should have done. They were. And I'm not taking credit for it because I was gone by then for four months. The problem was not the NSC staff. The problem was the Oval Office and the empty chair in the Oval Office uh, through a president who didn't want to hear problems about his buddy Xi Jinping didn't want to hear that China was having an enormous medical uh, problem, didn't want to hear that that uh, epidemic might uh, affect China's economy in a way that meant it couldn't comply with the interim trade deal that Trump wanted to sign and did sign in January, and most importantly of all, didn't want to hear bad news about this medical crisis that might adversely affect the U.S. economy, his ticket to re-election. So I think uh, the, the way Trump has uh, mishandled the pandemic is emblematic of his approach to office. To this day, nine months after this first became apparent, we still have no national strategy to deal with the coronavirus. We have many, many actions by the federal government, by different pieces of the federal government, by state and local governments, by private citizens. Uh Uh, And they can all be listed on a piece of paper, but a a list is not a strategy. And Trump still doesn't have a strategy, but it was his unwillingness to face the problem at the beginning, I think, that was the most dramatic failure because it cost cost us time uh, and opportunity where we could have mitigated uh, all the damage we've suffered.
0: How do you see us coming out of this pandemic? What do you see the lasting impacts? Do you see a lasting impact on our economy and our society of what has happened here?
1: Well, I think I think some things that were underway anyway have been sped up by the pandemic. Uh, I think the the loss of uh, the centrality of the office in a, in a densely populated metropolitan area. But I'd ha- also have to say, I think people need to be. Uh, cautious about drawing too many conclusions from it too soon. Uh, I think you ought to, you know, we should follow Edmund Burke's approach and not draw conclusions before we have the data. And uh, I think that uh, if we get a vaccine, and and that's still an if, but if we get a workable, reliable vaccine, uh, it could be that the effects turn out to be very small. When I was a little boy, people worried about polio. Nobody knew how you got polio. Uh, there were, but there were lots of pictures of people in iron lungs, uh, which probably was worse than a ventilator. Then, then came the vaccines, the salt vaccines, and others. And almost nobody talks about polio now. You don't, you don't worry about whether the person sitting next to you on an airplane has polio. Uh, and if you have the vaccine, you probably don't need to worry anyway. If we can do that with the coronavirus. Uh, then there's no reason why activity as it occurred in January and February of this year can't come back. Whether people want to do that or not, we'll we'll have to see.
0: So in your public appearances and statements and in your book, uh, you've made a pretty stinging critique of uh, certainly foreign and security policy in the last few years. What would be your best hope for positive change to come out of The work and the the statements that you've made?
1: Well, I think it's a mistake uh, uh, in the United States that we are on the verge of making very frequently uh, not to fully understand the nature of the larger world around us. Uh, I think uh, a lot of Trump's instincts uh, tend to turn away from the rest of the world. I think that's a mistake. I have to say a lot of what Obama did was also... Uh, isolationist, in a sense. Uh, The difference was he had more faith in multilateral institutions than Trump does or I do. But that's that's an abandonment of responsibility in another way. Uh, The fact is, we are uh, a global power, our economy is based on uh, global supply chains. Uh, Whether we like it or not, uh, we are the dominant free country in the world. Uh, and we either act to protect our interests and those of our friends and allies, or some someone else will take advantage of us. There's no retreat from that responsibility uh, and I don't think that is often enough discussed in the context of election campaigns. I'm not particularly optimistic it's going to be discussed in this election, uh, but but nobody should think that uh, that we can contemplate our navel endlessly and uh, and ignore what's happening in the rest of the world.
0: I think we're just about to wrap up. Uh, time for one more question. Uh, you, you've always been an active uh, policy critic and, and uh, someone proposing new directions and policy. Having had this adventure in the Trump administration, other than writing in a candidate on the presidential ballot, where will you focus your attention now?
1: Well, I think uh, on the political side, uh, after the election, I think the Republican Party has to have a very uh, significant conversation about how to avoid nominating another Donald Trump. Uh, I think that conversation has to be had whether Trump wins or loses. Obviously, if he loses, it's more immediate. But whatever the outcome, I think we need to uh, have that discussion. Uh, And I've already started speaking with people around the country uh, about it. Uh, trying to lay the groundwork, at least in the sense of getting ready for it. Uh, And I expect to be an active participant in it uh, after November 3rd.
0: I think there couldn't be any more important focus. Uh, I I get uh, some emails from a group called the Lincoln Republicans, and there seems to be some uh, movement around the country by those who care about the Republican Party and its distinguished history, starting with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, to uh, turn it back to its uh, appropriate course. So, so thank you for that work and that focus. Uh, thank you for your service. Thank you for an intriguing uh, book and for sharing your experience in such detail. Uh, I'd love to talk to you for longer, but uh, we're going to wrap up now. A reminder to everyone, uh, Ambassador Bolton's book, The Room Where It Happened, is now available wherever books are sold, We encourage you, I encourage you to purchase it. I found it fascinating. Please continue to follow the Commonwealth Club at commonwealthclub.org. Our thanks to Ambassador Bolton uh, for being with us today. And again, for your many long years of service. And now uh, we bring our Commonwealth Club program to an end. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California.